My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University. In this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast, we listen to a webinar that was held on June 23, 2016. Welcome to Police Integrity Lost, a webinar to discuss findings from a multi-year study of law enforcement officers arrested. My name is Morgan Cranston and I will be your host this afternoon. I'm the Marketing Communications Specialist for BGSU Information Technology Services. Your presenters will be Phil Stinson, Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at BGSU and Principal Investigator on the NIJ-funded Research Project, and John Lederbach, Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at BGSU and co-investigator on the NIJ-funded research project. We will be answering questions at the end of the webinar. Thank you for joining us, and I will now turn it over to Phil. So I'm Phil Stinson, and we're going to talk about our NIJ report for our police crime study. This is a summary presentation of the results from seven years of data collection and analysis, 2005 through 2011. Obviously, we're not going to be able to touch on a great deal of what's in the report because it's 670-some pages, and there's a lot of uh, depth there. This is a content analysis project, and one of the things we're concerned with in terms of methodology is making sure that we have a high level of intercoder reliability and across all the variables of interest in this study we do have a high Krippendorf's alpha coefficient and simple percentage of agreement exceeded 97.7% across all the variables between two or more coders. The primary way that we gather data is through the Google News search engine and Google Alerts. So if you look at the Google News page, that's not what we're interested in. We're actually interested in the search engine that drives traffic to the Google News page. So we set up Google Alerts, and Google Alerts are automated searches, and they constantly crawl the internet. In this case, they constantly crawl the Google News search engine. And when we get results that are hits, an email is sent, and then we look at the email and look at the link and uh, decide if it's relevant and then print it out and ultimately if it is relevant the case will get logged in or if it's supplemental information it will get added to our database. So there are a variety of strengths and limitations in this research. One of the things that we recognize is that not all instances of officers getting arrested make it into the news. So we do try to triangulate our data sources. So when we can, we get court records. When we can, we get videos, news videos and court videos and things like that. So we do try to make sure that we have valid and reliable information. We also recognize that there's a filtering process and that the media decides what they want to print and what they give uh, attention to, what goes on page one and those types of things. And there are a number of other strengths and limitations. So I want to briefly touch on the project's object relational database. We use a content management system called OnBase, and we've had a lot of questions about that. When a case comes in, we use a paper process where one of our research assistants will fill out a new case login sheet, and then it goes to me for approval and has to meet our coding protocol for case inclusion criteria. Now, this is a screenshot of an image that was imported into our digital imaging database component of our database. When we end up scanning papers in, pages in, they end up getting in a queue and will be indexed depending on what case is relevant to. So our relational database is tied to our object-oriented or digital imaging database. 
Now, sometimes an officer will get arrested more than once during the study period, and this screenshot shows you an officer who was employed by the Schenectady Police Department in New York, and he was arrested nine times while he was still employed as a police officer. It was the ninth time that was his final time and resulted in losing a job. And we see this in a variety of situations. Sometimes we can see these cases come across the wire, and we realize over a matter of months or over a period of years that an officer is unraveling. There are other things going on in their life that obviously are causing problems because we see an escalation in the types of instances and the frequency that they get arrested. Now, seemingly that's odd because police officers aren't supposed to be getting arrested in any event, but it does happen, and we have hundreds and hundreds of instances where officers will be arrested on multiple occasions during the study period. We're able to look in our relational database at a variety of different ways and sort the information in different ways depending on what our needs are. Here you're seeing a list of cases from the San Diego Police Department. And if we were to click on any one of those rows, it would take us to the specific case where we could look at other information in the relational database and then all of the different types of documents and file in the object-oriented database. We have the capacity to run full-text searches in our database. So here, I don't mean to make light of this particular case, but we ran a search for the term ice cream cake, and we were able to find one case where it actually did involve an incident over an ice cream cake, a birthday cake. We have a lot of court pleadings in the database. This is actually a settlement document in a civil action, and we'll get into that a little bit later that we also studied. In connection with officers who were arrested for crimes, we looked at whether they had been uh, sued at some point during their career for violating somebody's civil rights. We have videos in the database. It's something we added about three years ago, and we have probably 4,000 videos. The video that you're seeing the screenshot of here is a reporter talking about a case out of Pennsylvania where a state trooper had been arrested for murder. Originally, we had a five-page coding sheet with 109 variables, and over time, with different studies we were working on, we ended up with a 21-page coding sheet that has more than 270 quantitative variables, and it became unwieldy to work with paper coding sheets. So we ended up switching to a process where we were able to develop a computer-based coding sheet that pre-fills information that's pulled from the relational database. So here, by typing in a case number, we're able to pre-populate uh, various fields so that we don't have to retype information in when we're actually working on coding a case several years after it ends up in our database, once we follow the case through the court system, and then we eventually code on all those variables. And here is just a sample of several variables having to do with officer-involved domestic violence cases. And this is a, a modification, customized uh, system we have. It used to be in the IBM SPSS data collection series of software, and that's now the Unicom Intelligence Data Collection Interviewer that we use. And ultimately, when a coder is finished coding a specific case, the output is in an SPSS.SAV file, and then we can clean the data from there and merge it with our master project database. So now I want to get into specific findings from the NIJ report, and over the seven-year period, we had 6,724 arrest cases, and our primary unit of analysis is actually arrest case. So if an officer is arrested for 
raping three women, and there are charges relating to each of those rapes, that would actually be three cases in our database. And one of the reasons for that is we're interested in the final criminal case dispositions. So those 6,724 arrests involve 5,545 sworn officers who were employed by over 2,500 agencies in over 1,200 counties and independent cities in all 50 states in the District of Columbia. So the only place where you'd have an independent city that's not in a county are all the cities in the Commonwealth of Virginia, Baltimore, Maryland, St. Louis, Missouri, and Carson City, Nevada. And here we're looking at a map where we've mapped the cases, and you can see that it's all across the country. We've got urban, suburban, and rural areas. Here, the uh, particular map we're looking at is the rate of officers arrested per 1,000 sworn officers over the seven-year study period. When we look at all the cases, we see a variety of interesting things in terms of descriptive statistics. Overall, with all of these 6,724 cases, almost 60% of the arrest cases are incidents that occurred off-duty. About 41% occurred on duty. And these are non-federal agencies, so in addition to primary state police agencies, sheriff's offices, county police departments, and municipal police departments, we also have constable agencies in several states. We have tribal police departments, and in some places we have regional police departments. For example, in some places in Pennsylvania, you have multiple boroughs and townships that have banded together for a regional department. Looking at the most serious offense charged in each of the cases, what you see is the major problem we have here in terms of the cases are assault cases. So simple assault is the most common, most serious offense charged with almost 900 cases or 13%. If you add that with aggravated assault, so felony assault, over 20% of the cases involve assaults. And then the other thing we have there, driving under the influence cases, and then we get into some of the sex cases in terms of forcible fondling and forcible rape. Victim characteristics, we'll get into this specifically with some of the different types of crime, but when we look at all of the cases where we're able to determine the relationship of the victim, we see that a third of the cases, or actually in the cases that we could code over 50%, were strangers or non-stranger acquaintances of the officer who's arrested. So I have a topology of police crime, and almost all crime that's committed by sworn law enforcement officers falls into one or more of these types. Alcohol-related police crime, drug-related, sex-related, violence-related, and or profit-motivated. So these are not mutually exclusive categories, they're types. So for example, you could have a case that's a forcible rape case, that would be coded under this typology as both violence-related and sex-related. Similarly, you could have a drug case where an officer is arrested for trafficking in drugs, and that would be drug-related and also profit-motivated. So starting with alcohol-related offenses here, this is primarily an off-duty crime. Almost 90% of the crimes that are alcohol-related are committed off-duty. The most serious offense charged in the alcohol-related police crime cases, you'll see that there's dozens of different types of offenses and some things that on its face do not appear to be alcohol-related, but when we code these cases, subjectively, the coders made a decision that this was alcohol-related based on something that specifically indicated that in the materials documentation that we were looking at. So obviously here, driving under the influence is the primary alcohol-related offense, but you'll see that there are a variety of sex-related and violence-related offenses that are also alcohol-related. 
When we look at the drunk driving cases, it's an interesting thing because generally law enforcement officers are exempt from law enforcement. That is to say, police officers don't like to arrest other police officers. And historically, years ago, officers typically extended a professional courtesy from one officer to another who got caught driving, whether it was on duty or off duty, typically off duty. So we were interested in the drunk driving cases where officers were arrested. What is it about this case that led the officer to be arrested? And what we saw was there was something unique about the case, something about the case that just could not be explained away without calling a tow truck or perhaps calling a supervisor or writing a report. Over half the cases where an officer is arrested for drunk driving involved a traffic accident, and a fourth of the cases involved a traffic accident where somebody was injured. 20% of the cases, the officers refused a blood alcohol content test. Something that's quite upsetting, actually, is over 10% of these cases where an officer is charged with drunk driving, the officer fled the scene of the accident. So looking at the drug-related cases, this is interesting because over 60% of the cases are crimes that are committed while the officer is on duty. So a drug-related offense is more often a on-duty crime than something that's committed off-duty. And in a number of the off-duty cases, what we see is that there's something about the job that relates to that specific crime, even though it was a crime that was committed off-duty. So it could be an officer stole drugs from a drug dealer or the evidence room while they were on-duty, and then they sold them to somebody and got arrested for it while they were off-duty. And then we look at the most serious offense charged in the drug-related cases, and we see that specific drug offenses account for 41% of the cases, but we also have things such as robbery, drunk driving, theft and burglary cases, a variety of different types of crimes, crimes that are violence-related, crimes that are sex-related to some extent, and crimes that are profit-motivated. When we look at the specific drugs in the drug case, what we see is that almost a third of the cases involve cocaine, and it's cocaine and then marijuana. And originally, when we first looked at this with three or four years of data instead of the full seven years of data a number of years ago, it was cocaine, then marijuana, heroin, and crack. And what we've seen is a change here where we now see more cases in the latter years, so 2008 through 2011, where oxycodone and hydrocodone are are more common in these crimes than we had seen in the earlier years. And I would expect that when we go back and code for latter years, right now we're coding 2012 cases and logging in 2016 arrest cases, what we'll see is just like we see in the general population, I would assume that we'll see less oxycodone and hydrocodone and more heroin cases. And in these cases where we're dealing with oxycodone and hydrocodone, what we see is just like the general population, that quite often you could trace it back to the officer being injured, quite often on the job, has a legitimate prescription and ends up getting addicted to some sort of opioid. And we have different patterns of drug-related corruption because we wanted to look at not only the nature of the specific drugs involved, but what kind of cases were these. And we see a lot of different things here. It's not personal use always. It's not always drug trafficking or drug dealing. But we see a lot of these drug-related crimes where they're actually thefts and shakedowns of drug dealers, of officers who are working as patrol officers. We also have things such as theft from evidence rooms, forged prescriptions, uh, cases involving planning of drug evidence, things like that, a variety of different patterns that we see when we look at the drug-related corruption arrests. And here, when we look at a classification and regression tree analysis of patterns of drug-related corruption, what we see is that certain types of corruption involve different types of crimes. So when we have shakedowns that are in the nature of shaking down somebody on a traffic stop or from drug dealers, what we see here is that it typically involves cocaine, 
heroin, marijuana, and crack. Now here we look at a cart tree that's depicted visually in a different way. So when we look at selling drugs, specifically selling, dealing, or trafficking drugs, more often than not it's cocaine. If it involves cocaine, then it may well involve marijuana. If it doesn't involve cocaine, it's likely to be a case of trafficking or dealing or selling that involves heroin. And if not heroin, anabolic steroids. And then when we look at shakedowns and thefts from car stops and from drug couriers, again, we see cocaine, marijuana. So now we'll look at the uh, sex-related offenses. And here, almost half the cases are on-duty, but 53% are crimes that are committed off-duty by the officers. And one of the things that we look at with these crimes are just that the number of different types of offenses. So it's, it's rather concerning to look at this because when we look at the most serious offense charged in the sex-related arrest cases, we see that there are 322 cases involving a forcible rape and 100 cases involving statutory rape. It's close to 30% of the cases involve either forcible or statutory rape. And by the way, in terms of coding the most serious offense charged in all of these cases, we use the uh, hierarchy of seriousness uh, for offenses under the Uniform Crime Reports Coding Protocol. In terms of victims of sex crimes committed by sworn law enforcement officers, one of the things that's concerning to us is that almost half of the cases involve a victim who's under the age of 18. Often they're 14 or 15-year-old kids who are victims of officers. And it's not just girls. We have a number of cases where there are 14 and 15-year-old boys who are victims of sex crimes of officers. And then when we look at the relationship, about 40% of these cases involve a stranger or a non-stranger acquaintance, and similarly, about 40% a child who's unrelated to the officer who's arrested. In terms of violence-related offenses, we see a variety of things that have interested us over the years. So Jim Fife, who passed away more than a decade ago, wrote about bizarre violence back in the 1980s. And this was the off-duty, gun-involved criminal events involving officers that he couldn't think of any other way to describe it other than it's just bizarre violence. For example, those are cases where an officer, I'll give you an example, where some an officer gets into a dispute at a bar and pulls a gun out on the person they're sitting next to at the bar. And that's just an odd thing to do, but we see that type of thing over and over again. One instance where an officer pulled a gun on their 14-year-old stepdaughter because she hadn't completed her math homework the night before. We did a study a number of years ago on conductive energy devices, so tasers, the criminal misuse of those. And what we saw was the people who were typically charged with a crime, an officer who was charged with a crime involving a taser, the victim of that was no threat to the officer at all. They were commonly homeless people, teenagers, people who were already in handcuffs, and sometimes they tase each other. We did a study a number of years ago on officer-involved domestic violence. One of the things that concerns us there is we see that in officer-involved domestic violence cases, quite oftentimes we've seen officers who are convicted of simple assault and under the Lautenberg Amendment to the Gun Control Act of 1968, an officer, or anybody frankly, who's been convicted of a qualifying misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, including simple assault where the victim's in a familial relationship with the offender, cannot possess or own firearms or ammunition. And this is a concern, and we'll talk about some of the policy implications with this. And then last year, I worked on a study with the Washington Post where we looked at 
on-duty shootings where officers were arrested for murder or manslaughter, and that's gotten a lot of interest over the last year or two. It was an area that some of the variables that we had to use in that variable to uh, find the cases, the gun-involved variables, are not included in the initial report we've done here for NIJ, and they're not included in the data set that we've archived with the National Archives of Criminal Justice data because the gun-involved variables were supplemental variables that we were coding during the grant period with other resources, and we just haven't added it to this data set yet. But in supplemental deposits, we will add that to the data set. When we look at the violence cases here, more than a third of the cases involve an on-duty crime. And the reason we don't see more officers arrested for violence-related crime is because, for on-duty offenses, is because policing is violent. And a lot of times things that are perhaps criminal, that are violent in nature, uh, committed by a police officer, are excused, aren't viewed as criminal because it's a police officer who's done it. But if we look here, we've got over 2,000 cases where an officer is involved in a violence-related offense that occurred off-duty. And we do have a concern that there's a lot of work-home spillover, where it's hard to turn the job off at the end of the day. And we see that, that a lot of violence-related offenses seem to flow from stress from the job. When we look at the most serious offense charged in the violence-related arrest cases, obviously the assaults are at the top of the list. But here, if you look through this list, we have all sorts of things, including at the bottom of the list, things such as trespassing, public drunkenness, prostitution-related offenses, all those types of things. So it's a variety of different types of offenses that officers are arrested for that are in some way violence-related. And then the victims of violence-related crimes. Here, over 50% of the victims are strangers or non-stranger acquaintances. As I mentioned, the work we did with the Washington Post that was published on April 12th of 2015, I've continued to work with that data because uh, I've been getting a lot of questions. There's a lot of interest in that. So we're keeping that data up to date. And that includes cases that are more current than the NIJ report here, which is the seven years ending in 2011. Here we've changed the unit of analysis from arrest case to arrested officer. And during the 10-year period, 2005 through 2014, 47 officers were charged with murder or manslaughter resulting from an on-duty shooting where the officer shot and killed somebody. But last year, 2015, we saw 18 officers who charged with murder or manslaughter. I don't really think we can make much of that in terms of a spike. You know, we're dealing with outliers. We're dealing with a very small sample, and we need to look at these patterns over a number of years. So far, by my last check earlier this week, Six officers have been charged with murder and manslaughter from an on-duty incident where the officer shot and killed somebody. Now, these offenses could have occurred prior to the year, but we code uh, the arrest date or the date the officer's charged is uh, which year it would go into. And when we add it up here in terms of looking at the officers who were convicted, if we've got 71 cases here, if we count all those together, by my last count, 23 were convicted. 12 by a guilty plea and 11 by a jury verdict and no convictions by a bench trial. If we look at the verdict today with uh, Cesar Goodson in uh, Baltimore, even though that's not a gun-involved case, I would have predicted that that would have resulted in an acquittal as it did because that's what we've seen in these types of cases with a bench trial. You're just not going to see an officer convicted of a homicide-related offense in a bench trial. It would be very unusual. And if an officer were to be convicted in such a trial, I would think it would be a lesser offense and not on a homicide-related offense. It just seems to be what we're seeing here. 
And then when we look at the profit-motivated cases, this is interesting because almost 70% of these cases are for crimes that occurred while an officer was on duty. Here we see a slightly higher percentage of the officers are female who were arrested for profit-motivated offenses than in other types of crime, but we see it happens at all stages of an officer's career, and we see a good bit of this, frankly, when an officer is late in their career. And by the way, with all of our cases, it's interesting because over 15% of these cases, the officers arrested when they have 18 years of service or more at the time of arrest or time that they committed the crime for which they're arrested. And that goes against prior research that would suggest that officers, if they're going to get in trouble, are going to do so very early in their career, and they're either going to settle down or wash out. And what we're seeing is it's something different going on here. And when we approximate a longitudinal study, there are problems late stage career and leading into the pre-retirement years. The most serious offense charged in the profit-motivated cases here, we see all sorts of things, different types of larceny, but we see 103 cases, 6.4% of our cases that were profit-motivated involved a robbery. So some of these are very serious offenses, and then there's a variety of different things, a lot of embezzlement and things like that. So as I briefly alluded to earlier, one of the things we wanted to look at is a correlate of police misconduct to see if officers who got arrested also got in trouble in other aspects of their job. So we were interested in looking at whether an officer who'd been arrested at some point during their law enforcement career, had they been sued in federal court, had they been named as a party defendant in a civil action pursuant to 42 U.S.C. 1983, a civil action where an officer is acting under the color of law to violate somebody's federally protected rights. So we were able to do this because several years ago, a while ago now, the public access to court's electronic record system for the federal courts, known as PACER, added a master name index, a case locator with a master name index. So what we're able to do here is run a search based on an officer's name in a geographic area of the country. And what we have is golden is the list of names of officers, because as many of you know, 1983 suits for historical reasons, which really aren't even relevant anymore, you still have cases filed where the named defendants are the individual officers, even though it's actually an action against not only the officer acting in their official capacity, but an action against the municipality for which they work. So we have the name of officers, so that allows us to look at these cases in a way that we wouldn't be able to gather them otherwise by running their names through. So we ran 5,545 names through over a year period, and what we found was that when we look at all the cases, switching our unit of analysis briefly back to case, 24% of the cases, 1,610 of the cases, involved an officer who was arrested who at some point during their career had been sued under 1983 in federal court. And if we switch back the unit of analysis to arrested officer, it's 22% of those officers. 22% of the officers who've been arrested at some point during their career have been sued in federal court. One interesting thing we see with the 1983 actions, I was surprised to see that over 15%, I don't remember the exact percentage, involved cases that were originally filed by a plaintiff's attorney in a state trial court and were removed because of a federal question by a civil defense attorney who wanted to litigate the 1983 issue not in a local court but in a federal district court. And we see that as a statistically significant variable in a lot of our regression models, and I have no idea why. I haven't figured that out yet. 
So in terms of uh, some final thoughts, what we don't know about police crime, we're now looking at this and turning this into really a longitudinal study. We're approximating a longitudinal study. We're trying to look at trends over time. And now that we're in our 12th year of data collection and in our eighth year of data analysis, it's going to allow us a lot of opportunities to do that. One of the things that we want to do, which we haven't been able to do in the past because of the nature of the raw data, is code for race of the victim. We do now code for race of the arrested officer. We added that about five years ago, but we haven't figured out a way because we just don't have access to data that would tell us the race of the victim, and that's unfortunate. We also recognize that many officers who get in trouble are given the opportunity to resign in lieu of being charged criminally. And some of that is because of concerns related to uh, an officer's Garrity rights uh, out of uh, Garrity versus New Jersey, a 1960s case from the Supreme Court. Other times, it seems to be that the law enforcement agency employing the officer who's in trouble doesn't want to air their dirty laundry publicly, and they quietly resolve the situation. The problem there is that sometimes those officers will end up employed at neighboring law enforcement agencies where they may get in trouble again. And we've actually seen that. We have a number of cases in our database where an officer has been charged and we think they're out of law enforcement and then several years later they show up in an agency in a neighboring county and they get arrested again for something. This is still exploratory research and frankly there's a lot that we don't know in terms of what Donald Rumsfeld would call the unknown unknowns. Uh, Very early in the studying police crime uh, where we are now, So we have a number of questions that have been asked this afternoon. Uh, One question is, will our findings be published in popular format or only as the NIJ report? We've done a number of things to try to have practitioner-friendly products disseminating our results. We have several research briefs that have been published in Police Chief Magazine. We also have a periodic podcast, which is available through iTunes, where we talk about different aspects. Some of them are good recordings. Some of them, frankly, aren't so good. But we deal with a lot of different areas in our podcast. And that's actually gotten this material out there to a lot of people who wouldn't find their way to a library where they are reading peer-reviewed journal articles. Uh, so I have another question. Why do I claim that I'm not surprised that officers are not convicted of on-duty shootings by a bench trial? Why do I claim that I'm not surprised? Well, you know, as a former trial lawyer, I think about this in that a defense attorney has to make a decision in any criminal case where they're representing somebody. So if we deal with a case that's got some sort of sensational facts or just horrible facts where it's a very emotional type case. So if you have a case where it's a crime of violence and you have a child victim, for example, or you have a case that's a show trial where it's getting a lot of media attention, it's a general practice of defense attorneys to consider bench trials in those types of situations because a judge is used to hearing horrible things on a regular basis and they can separate out the law from the facts and make a decision. Where did I come up with the coding variables? I'm not sure what that means. Do you know what that means, John? Perhaps the questioner is referring to um, the process of your dissertation and how you came up with the variables to begin with and how that's been building over time. A lot of it was just thinking a lot about this and what would I like to know about. I'll give you one example, and I wish I could remember why I included it as a variable. But when we were studying officer-involved domestic violence, I wanted to add several weapons-related variables. I was interested in cases. We wanted to know if we had cases that involved police batons, police metal flashlights. And I made two variables that differentiated between firearms that were 
personally owned and firearms that were owned by the department employing the arrested officer. And what we saw there was officers who were arrested, an officer-involved domestic violence crime that involved an officer who used in some way a personally owned firearm is more likely to be convicted and more likely to be fired. So I have a question here. Lautenberg Amendment policies and why officers continue to carry a gun after conviction. Well, that's a good question. They shouldn't be. I don't know why that's going on. I think one thing that's happening is sometimes uh, law enforcement agencies do not become aware of uh, when officers are arrested. Either the officer hides it, doesn't bring it to their attention, or for whatever reason, they don't become aware of it. They're arrested by a neighboring law enforcement agency where they live, which might not be in the jurisdiction where they work. So if an agency is not aware of it, I suppose that that's one way that we can end up with an officer who's still carrying a gun. One of the things that we think should be done, and, and this is done in many places now, where full background checks, full criminal background checks should be conducted by any state and local federal agencies where they have employees who carry firearms as a regular part of their job. Uh, and that would deal with a lot of these problems. How does the conviction rate of police officers compare to the average citizen? I hate to say this, but I have no idea because I really haven't spent a whole lot of time studying other types of crime in recent years, and that hasn't been the focus of our research. John, do you see any of these questions that you'd like to tackle? We have a question there about whether there's any data info showing a higher indictment or arrest rate for incidents investigated by outside or independent agencies rather than the officer's employing agency. And I think well, that varies in terms of the type of the police crime, but one of the important findings was that many times these officers are arrested by officers employed by departments other than their own. I think that was consistent, right, right Phil? And that, Absolutely. That there was a large percentage of officers that were arrested by another agency, which suggests that obviously it's very difficult to arrest a, an officer who you work with. And so that's one of the problems uh, in cases of police crime overall. Yeah, I think that there are some very good reasons why an officer would be arrested by some other agency as opposed to their employing agency. One is for transparency's sake and also just to reduce the appearance of any sort of a conflict of interest. And then we have a lot of cases where the agency will bring in an outside agency to investigate it because of some sort of specialized experience that that outside agency has. So if we're dealing, for example, with child porn, they might bring in the state attorney general's office or a county prosecutor or something like that. Question is, uh, is it possible that some of the officers who were convicted by juries should not have been convicted? Uh, sure. You know, we've seen in a variety of contexts, not just in cases involving police officers, but over the years, we've certainly seen instances of jury nullification where a jury will, despite the overwhelming evidence will decide to convict somebody when they should not have and vice versa, not convict somebody when they should have. I suppose that happens, but I think that's a greater issue than just dealing with police crime. Question is, what is the link to the podcast? So uh, there's two ways you can get to it. You can go to bgsu.edu slash police integrity lost and then click on podcast. You can also go to iTunes and search the podcast for police integrity lost and all of our podcast episodes are distributed through iTunes. They're also available through our digital repository at Bowling Green, which is called ScholarWorks. This question, a book by an investigative researcher sounds more interesting than research. I think one of the things we've strived to do in this 
project, I don't know how well we've succeeded, is that we've tried to disseminate findings from this project in a variety of formats. Um, I'm not sure that there's a lot of NIJ-funded research, at least prior to the last couple of years, that does the amount of podcasts and especially the practitioner-oriented um, publications. And so um, we're interested in disseminating this research uh, wherever and however we can. If there's suggestions about how to disseminate the research, we'd be glad to entertain them. Wouldn't the comparison between police-involved crime and other citizen-involved crime be an important correlation to make in order to validate our work? John, you want to address this? The police officers shouldn't be getting arrested. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we had mentioned this today, and some of the comments that we've had from outsiders who look at our work is, well, maybe we can compare the rate of police crime to that of the average citizen and come to the conclusion that, well, geez, you know, police rates of crime are less than citizens. And I, I think while that may be true and probably is true, I think it misses the point. The point is, is that police are in a, a special position and they're afforded uh, special privileges in our society, and rightly so. And so when they get arrested, a, a police officer who's arrested is much more important, I guess, from our perspective, or more significant than an everyday arrest of another citizen. Police officers shouldn't be getting arrested at all. And so the fact that the 99.9% of our officers are never arrested really isn't the focus of our work. The focus of our work is sometimes those that we entrust with the power of the state to make arrests break the law themselves. And so that's really the point. It's not a point of comparing rates between police and citizens. It's the point of uh, exposing and investigating cases in which police themselves are arrested. And so I understand the, uh, the point of the question. I think we just look at it in two different points of view. There's a question, is there any way to estimate how many officer related crimes happen, but the officer is not arrested. Well, that's one of the things we're very interested in because that's the real hidden nature of police crime. But it's a difficult thing to research. I haven't figured out how to research it. There's a lot of problems if we look at different types of research. Back in the late 60s and early 70s, there was observational research done by Albert J. Rice where over 20% of the officers who were being observed by researchers, they knew that a researcher was there. The researcher was on a ride-along with the officer. Over 20% of those officers were observed committing crimes in the presence of the researcher. There is research, Ed McGuire's uh, published research, that suggests there's a social desirability effect in law enforcement agencies completing surveys. So I don't want to send out surveys to prove something that I already know, which is I don't think we're going to get a straight answer from many law enforcement agencies or many law enforcement officers in terms of crime that has gone unreported or not prosecuted. How often do officers let their fellow officers go without an arrest? You know, I can only tell you anecdotally, I, I have no idea. And, I, and again, it's, it's a difficult thing to research. John, you've done observational research years ago. What do you think? I mean, I, I think that the fact that this database is based on the occurrence of an arrest is both a strength and a weakness. I think in terms of a weakness, we do not have data on cases that do not involve an arrest. And so these questions are of great interest but are not answered by this database. The strength, though, of using uh, an arrest as an indicator of a case is that these are not cases of just an allegation of misconduct. These are cases that involve an allegation of misconduct and then an arrest. An arrest is an objective 
verifiable event. And so we can count it. And so that's why we use an arrest as an indicator of a case. But obviously, the biggest disadvantage to that is there's crimes that are being committed that don't involve an arrest. And for those cases, this database uh, so far doesn't speak to those cases. There's a number of comments uh, people are posting in the webinar suggesting that we should write a book. We should get a book published. We should. We agree with you. We actually have thought about it. We've got two books in mind, and again, we just haven't gotten around to it. We absolutely agree with you. And I think it would be a lot of fun to work on it. We just, we just haven't done it. So there's a question related to the Washington Post study about police shootings that we were involved in. Has there been any data collected related to the grand jury process, especially in jurisdiction that presents every police shooting to a grand jury compared to those that are reviewed by a prosecutor's office? Well, one of the things we don't know about prosecutors in general is how many cases prosecutors consider but decide ultimately not to bring charges in. Because no prosecutor in this country who's elected is going to tell you that. What they're going to tell you is their success rate, and prosecutors keep track of their success rate based on the number of cases that they win, and prosecutors win cases by getting a conviction. Prosecutors only bring cases where they think they can get a conviction because they're in it to win. That's what's important to a prosecutor. Anecdotally, we can tell you from what we have looked at that the grand jury process in cases involving law enforcement officers who've been involved in some sort of incident that's being considered as criminal that's on-duty related violence, what we see there is the same thing we see when we look at jury trials of officers who were being tried for on-duty crimes of violence. And this is especially true when we're dealing with deadly force, when we're dealing with somebody having been killed, that juries, trial juries, are very reluctant to second-guess the split-second life-or-death decisions of police officers. Everybody recognizes that policing is violent, and behind the closed doors, it just seems they're not willing to convict quite often. Now, Granted, there's very little research about juries, trial juries. There's even less research about the grand jury process. And my only experience with the grand jury was years ago in representing a police officer who was called before a federal grand jury. And as his lawyer, I actually had to sit outside in the hallway because in many systems, including the federal system, lawyers are not allowed in the grand jury room other than the prosecutor. Would you be able to interview the officers to find out the factors that led to the crime? I think from a practical standpoint, the first hurdle we'd have there is, remember, we're university-based researchers, and we have to, anytime we're dealing with human subjects in research, we have to get approval from our human subjects review board. That would be a lot of hurdles. It certainly could be done. I've stayed away from actually talking to individual officers who've been arrested. I just haven't done it. And what were you going to say about that? I think that it's a fascinating question. I think that the interviews would provide some qualitative information beyond the news articles. But I also think that's way beyond the scope of this project. I would love to be involved in an additional funded project to look more closely at the individual cases. So the person that asked that question. gave some examples, including family problems and bad finances. Two things come to mind. First is, remember I said earlier that about 15% of the cases where an officer is arrested 
it's within three years of retirement eligibility. We see spikes at 18 to 20 years, 23 to 25 years of service, 28 to 30, and even 33 to 35 years. And it seems that in a lot of places, those are the levels where somebody retires. So some places, they still have 20-year retirement for law enforcement officers, uh, 25, 30 in some other places. The fact that we're seeing an uptick there, and a lot of those are profit-motivated offenses, I do think that there are a lot of uh, concerns about finances and uh, financial difficulties. And that's something going back years ago. I mean, I remember being told at the New Hampshire State Police Academy, there's three things that will mess up your career as a police officer, and it was booze, broads, and bucks. So women, financial problems, and alcohol would do your career in. And then something else we noticed anecdotally, when we were looking at the master name index in PACER and looking at civil cases, uh, trying to find cases where officers had been uh, civilly sued under 42 U.S.C. 1983. One of the things that my research assistants commented on over and over again is the large number of these officers, whether they've been sued under 1983 or not, the large number of these officers who filed for bankruptcy, and it's more than a few. And it seems to be that starts around year 9, year 9 to year 12 of career, and I think that there's a lot of other researchers could speak to what goes on in terms of the uh, life cycle of somebody's career and marriages, things like that. The final technical report, which is 670 or so pages, many of those are pages involving tables, is available through the National Criminal Justice Reference Service at www.ncjrs.gov. And then finally, we did deposit in December of 2014 our data set with the National Archives of Criminal Justice data, and that is available or will be available to researchers, to students, to other scholars to replicate our results, to extend our findings and merge with other data sets, answer other research questions. I'm not aware as to whether that has been made available publicly, and I'm not aware as to what the level of restriction will be on the data set. There are some concerns that NIJ had regarding confidentiality and the fact that even though we have stripped the names of the arrested officers from the data set that was deposited, you still could figure out who the individuals were. So I think there's going to be some level of restriction on that that data set. That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Lost podcast. It was recorded on June 23, 2016, during a live webinar. The webinar was produced by Morgan Cranston and Patrick Lisk. Production assistance was provided by Mariah Lax, Ashley Roberts, and Zach Calagaros. My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. The research discussed in this podcast episode was supported by award number 2011 IJCX24, awarded by the National Institute of Justice at the United States Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this podcast are mine alone and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Justice. Support for the Police Integrity Laws podcast was provided by the Wallace Action Fund of Tides Foundation on the recommendation of Mr. Randall Wallace. For more information on my research, please go to www.bgsu.edu slash police integrity lost.